0: If you have your Bible, you can turn this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be looking at a couple of verses there and also several other verses throughout the Word of God. I'm returning to a series that I uh, had to put on pause, uh for Christmas, um, Lies About God. And last year we looked at five of the big lies, and um, Lord willing, we're going to look at at least three or more, maybe four, who knows, but... Uh, Today, we're going to be tackling the lie, the lie that says this, God won't give you more than you can handle. In her book, Second Chance Heaven, Tamara LaRoe tells her testimony of growing up as a troubled teen. After her parents divorce, she became convinced that their split up was all her fault. The rejection that she felt from her father abandoning her and her mother proved in her mind that she was unlovable. And so she developed an inferiority complex and battled with deep depression, even as a teenager. Then once she got out of school, she began searching for another man to love her like her father was supposed to. And that led to a series of abusive and toxic relationships, which only then reinforced her worst fears that She was damaged goods and unwanted. And she said in her book, I was convinced that I had become a burden on people and I reached the conclusion I would just be better off dead. And so one day, Tamara found the gun, hid in her mother's room. She locked herself away and decided to end her life. She described what happened next. She wrote, I began screaming out to God, God forgive me. God, if you're there, help me. Then the gun went off. I felt my lungs filling with blood. Then I went deaf. My eyes were open, but I couldn't see anything. The darkness was encroaching upon me. I knew that death was gripping my soul. Then all of a sudden, she said, I felt my soul leave my body, and I instantly began falling and falling and falling into an abyss. Now, we're going to find out what happened to Miss Tamara later on in the message, but I think that her testimony today offers us a contrast of a very popular saying that we hear from well-meaning preachers and Christians. And that is this. We've all heard it. God won't give you more than you can handle. How many of you in here, just by way of survey, have heard that before? Perhaps someone has said this to you trying to offer comfort through a tough time. The intention is well, or maybe you have heard or seen the mantra reflected on social media. There's a favorite saying of prosperity preachers, this one is. In fact, Joe Lowstein, he tweeted recently this, quote, God will not give you more than you can handle. If you have a big challenge today, that means you have a big destiny. That statement is intended to be helpful, but what we really need to know when we hear that is, is it biblical? You see, the mantra is misleading. It sounds like, at first glance, that God is going to protect me from all difficulty and all tribulation in this life. Uh, In other words, He won't let me bury a child. Uh, He won't let me get cancer He won't let me suffer through a season of depression. And what I'm telling you today is that statement sets people up for unrealistic expectations and it paints a portrait of God that doesn't match the God that we read in the Bible. Not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, not trying to offend anyone, but I think that that statement does more damage than good. So in the message this morning, we're going to debunk that myth. And I'm going to show you how I think that this half-truth is really the result of sloppy Bible interpretation. And then moreover, I want to help you to understand why God allows suffering in our lives. As we stand on the threshold of a new year, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. You're going to face something in the coming year that's going to put you on your heels and make you doubt and make you question and and seek God in prayer. And you need to be prepared for that. So I want to talk to you, number one, about the reality of suffering. The reality of suffering. Now, I told you to flip to 2 Corinthians 1. Hold your place there and follow along with me in 1 Corinthians 10. The origin of today's lie really comes from a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 10, where the Apostle Paul is writing about the nature of temptation. It's also on the screen. Notice what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with, there it is a third time, the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I was never really good at math, but I counted the word temptation three times in that passage. Amen? What happens is many Christians read this verse and they misapply it to hardships and trials. But if you carefully notice the context. Paul is not writing about adversity here. He's not writing about sickness or depression or hard times. He's writing about temptation. In other words, what he's saying is, look, Christians, Corinthians, you can expect temptation to come just like it has in the life of every child of God. But he says, with every temptation, God always provides a way of escape so that you have a chance to get out of it now here's the rub temptations and trials are like apples and oranges right in fact check out the chart that i've got coming up i'll explain that here in a second god allows us to be tested to refine our durability our strength our character making us more like christ while satan tempts us to steal kill and destroy our lives We'll come back to this chart here in a second, but listen to what Adrian Rogers said. He put it this way. He said, quote, The devil tempts us to do evil to cause us to stumble, but God tests us to do good to us to help us to learn how to stand. Now, you can see the difference in Scripture. Adam is tempted in the garden to eat the forbidden fruit, while Abraham is tested when he goes to the top of Mount Moriah to lay Isaac on the altar. Daniel is tested to trust God in the lion's den while Samson is tempted as he lays his head in the lap of Delilah to reveal the strength or the secret of his strength. Job is tested when he loses everything in suffering in one afternoon and then he's tempted when his wife comes along and says, you know, you ought to curse God and die. Jesus is tempted by Satan for 40 days in the wilderness, and then he's tested in Gethsemane when he has to pray with great fervor, not my will, but thy will be done. See the difference between trials and temptations? God allows testing in our lives to build us up. Satan tempts us to break us down. Years ago when they were completing the Union Pacific Railroad in the American West, there was an elaborate trestle bridge that was built across a large canyon in the west. The engineer wanted to test the bridge, and so he loaded a train with extra cars. It was actually double its regular payload. And then the train was driven across the middle of the bridge and parked where it stayed for an entire week. One worker asked the engineer, he said, ''Sir, are you trying to break the bridge?'' And the engineer said, ''No.'' I'm trying to prove that the bridge won't break. See the difference between trials and temptations? Both tests and temptations will come, but when they do, we need to consider the source. Is it from God or is it from Satan? Temptations are from Satan to lead us away from God. Trials are allowed by God to lead us to God. Now, a second problem with this lie, is that it doesn't match the experience of many of God's choice servants. Let me give you an example. Consider what Paul wrote in the introduction of his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Listen to what Paul wrote here. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength That we despaired of life itself. You ever been there before? Verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We could also look at other examples. Moses. In Numbers chapter 11 and verse 15, he cried out to the Lord, I am not able to carry all these people alone. I am burdened. It is too heavy for me. God, if you will treat me like this, then kill me at once. He wasn't the only one. Elijah. Elijah was so fatigued and fearful at one point in his ministry that he retreated to a cave and he asked God to take his life. That's in 1 Kings 19 and verse 4. Job, in the crucible of suffering, he wondered, God, why did you even allow me to be born? That's in Job chapter 3 and verse 11. And David, his raw emotions erupt in Psalm 6, verses 6 and 7. Look at what he says. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, oh Lord, how long? You've prayed that before too, haven't you? Lord, How long? Will you allow the suffering to go on? Lord, how long will you allow my child to be wayward? Lord, how long will you allow the water to be turned off? David continues, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. Now, let me ask you a question, friend. Does this sound like the musings of stained glass saints who have it all together, who have all the answers? Who have perfect hair and perfect lives and uh, tribulation and trial never touch them? Or does this sound like believers who have their backed up against the wall who are saying, Lord, I can't take one more day of this. Lord, I'm troubled here. God, are you listening? And they are on their last ray of hope. I mean, they are threadbare in their faith. You see, we need to be careful about this catchphrase because it sets up a cruel catch 22 if you're facing something today or you find yourself in the future facing something that's more than you can handle then number one if it's your fault that you're not handling it very well then usually the answer to that is well you just need to have more faith we've heard that before haven't you it becomes your fault and that leads to discouragement that leads to shame that leads to burdens you were never meant to carry That's not a good place to be. Or the other option is, if you're facing more than you can handle and you've accepted that lie, then your view of God is seriously lacking substance. Does that mean that if I'm facing more than I can handle that that God is too weak? That God doesn't know what's going on in my life? That God can't stop the evil from encroaching in? You see, this leads to a bad place. And it doesn't even fit with the picture of Scripture. So, number one, I want you to see today the reality of suffering. Here's the truth God will allow you to face more than you can handle. Listen, why? Because that's the only way we can learn to depend on Him. It's the only way that we might be humbled. It's the only way our faith is deepened and how we are transformed. There's no other way than suffering, it's the way of Christ who picked up a cross and went to Calvary for you and me. We can't escape it, friends. Now, that's not popular. That may not sell many books or get your face on television. But, friend, that's the truth of the Word of God. Do you want a false faith? Do you want cotton candy Christianity? Or do you want the real deal, the real truth of the Word of God that's going to help you when you get a diagnosis that you weren't looking for, when the bottom falls out of your life, and when you face trials and troubles, you want the real faith to be able to carry you through. Not just something that sounds good and tickles ears on Sunday mornings, but something that actually has substance. And so I want you to see the reality of suffering. And then number two, I want you to notice with me this morning, the reasons for suffering. The reasons for suffering. When we're in the crucible of suffering, we oftentimes holler this, God, get me out of this. Amen? But God has us there for a reason, doesn't He? So really what we ought to say is not, God, get me out of this, but God, what do you want me to get out of this? I'm in school. I'm taking notes. Lord, I'm doing the best that I can to learn through this hard time. And by the way, when the test is on, the teacher's silent. Amen? So, Lord, let me get all the lessons that I'm supposed to learn through this so I don't have to do a retest later. Amen? So, we want God to change our circumstances, but God wants to use the circumstances to change us. So, let me give you four reasons today. If you're overwhelmed... If you're burdened, if you're dealing with suffering, why? God has allowed it. There are four reasons we could look at. First is this. Suffering can develop character. Suffering can develop character. Notice what 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7 say. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice a few phrases there. Timeless truth packed into this convenient little verse about the nature of trials. They are momentary for a little while, Peter says. They are mandatory if necessary, and then they are manifold, agreed by various trials and he actually uses the analogy from metallurgy here to make his point he's saying look just as a jeweler or a smithy would refine gold by heating it up to burn off the impurity so too god holds us over the fires of affliction to burn away those qualities in our lives which are unlike christ and that's why he says it's going to be more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire and the result is praise glory and honor Job has the exact same viewpoint. I love the way the Old Testament and the New Testament just complement one another. Job, all the way back in the patriarchal period, he had the same view as Peter did on suffering. Uh, Job 23 and verse 10, he said that he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as what church? Gold. James also taught the same principle. James 1, 3, and 4, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Amy Carmichael, she was an Irish missionary who went to India. She died in the year 1951, but she told the story in one of her memoirs about how that when she was in India, she went to a goldsmith to watch him work. And at first, the smithy took some old gold jewelry, some other nuggets, and he put them into a ceramic pot, and then he held that ceramic pot over a forge. And then he began to increase the temperature with the bellows, and he he got that fire red hot, and, and as the temperature rose, the gold inside that crucible began to melt, and then the man pointed out to Amy Carmichael there that as she looked into that, there was scum, what they call scum, on top of that molten gold. And he informed her that as the temperature rose, that, that, that dross, if you will, would burn off. It just couldn't stand under that kind of heat. And what you would be left with at the end of the heating process would be pure gold. Amy Carmichael asked him, How do you know when the gold is pure? The man replied, When I can see my reflection in the molten gold, Here's what Amy Carmichael said about that. She said, Christ will turn up the heat in the crucible of life's trials to purify our souls so that when He looks at you, He sees a reflection of Himself. I may not like what I'm going through. It may not be the path that I would have picked for my life. I can't say it's my best life now, but at the end of the process, if I'm going to look less like myself and more like Jesus, then go ahead, Lord. I'm all yours. So suffering can develop character. Then I want you to see this. Suffering can deepen our dependency. Paul was a go-getter. Amen. He would never be slowed down by anything. He had a zeal to serve the Lord. Except there was one thing that was a bump in the road in his life. He called it a thorn in the flesh. We read about it in 2 Corinthians 12. But think about all that God allowed this man to be buffeted with. Beatings, snake bites, shipwreck, debilitating illness. I mean, some of us would have given up. But Paul called this thing his thorn in the flesh. Truthfully, we'll never know what it is. I've read so many commentaries. Some people say it was blindness. Some say it was malaria. Some say it was something else. Paul never identified it, but he was certain in his passage in 2 Corinthians 12 that God allowed it into his life to kick the slats from out under Paul so that he would be more dependent on God. Here's what he wrote. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, this is the Apostle Paul. Second only to Jesus as the top Christians of all time, right? And yet he said, I have a tendency to get puffed up. That preaches to me. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Three times God, uh, Paul asked God, take this away from me. And three times the answer was no. Can you serve God if God's answer to you is no? Well, here's what Paul wrote. Therefore I boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul said, look, I learned to be content in it. I learned to accept it. I learned to view it as a gift from God in my life to keep me from reverting back to the old man I used to be. You see, listen to me. Without suffering, we forget our neediness and reliance upon God. Without suffering, we would never admit our weakness. We, some of us would have never turned to God unless He allowed everything in our lives to crumble at our feet. In other words, listen, and I've said this before, when things are going well, when you got good health, when your kids are in line, when there's plenty of money in the bank, There's no storm clouds in sight. It's easy to serve God. Anybody can serve, right? But comfort, luxury, and ease are not good for our spiritual lives. They just aren't. They lead us to complacency. They lead us to sloth. They lead us to laziness. In his book, Where is God When It Hurts? Philip Yancey tells a story about a man named Christian Rhaegar. He suffered for four years in Dachau. That was a Nazi concentration camp in World War II. Rhaegar was part of the true church, the true remnant in Germany. And when Hitler began to speak out against the Jews and he began to persecute the Jews, he spoke out against it. And as a result of his descent, Christian Rhaegar was rounded up with others like Martin E. and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was sentenced to a slow death in the camp of Dachau. Well, one day Christian Rhaegar said that he received a letter from his wife. He somehow that letter had been smuggled into the camp. And at the bottom of that letter, his his wife had written a Bible verse. Acts four twenty six through 29. And here's what it said. Lord, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. Well, the next day, Mr. Ragar was rounded up by the guards. He was brought into an interrogation room. The SS officers were, were, were going to torture the man unless he give up the names of other Christians that he knew. But that scripture gave him courage in that moment. And just as he was about to step into that terrible interrogation, he said that a man he'd never seen before, one of the Germans, one of the men in the camp, walked up to him, handed him a matchbox, and said, put this in your pocket. He goes into the interrogation room, and to his surprise, they ask him just a few questions, and they let him go. He gets back to his barracks. Rhaegar reached into his pocket, pulled out the matchbox, opened it up, and he thought, wow, what a kind gesture. Matches are such a vital thing in a place like this. But as he opened the matchbox up, there was no matches inside, but there was a little piece of paper. He opened up the piece of paper, unfolded it, and printed there were the words of Acts chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. Here's what he said. He said, it was a miracle, a message directly from God. That stranger could not have possibly known about the letter that I received the day before from my wife. And I was transformed in that moment. No, God did not rescue me. God did not make my suffering easier. But He assured me that He was alive and that He knew where I was and that He was with me. It was there in Dachau, he said, I learned to depend upon God. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's comfortable. I'm not saying we desire to go through it. But friend, there are some precious things that you can learn about God only in the crucible and the trial and the fire. You can't learn it any other way. And when you learn that He's there with you and that He's guiding you through it and that uh, through your weakness, He'll help you in His strength. Oh friend, you get something that's more precious than gold when you come out on the other side. Nobody can take it away from it. An atheist won't be able to talk you out of it or deny it. It's called a testimony of the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God to keep His people through the hard times. Oh, you can't explain it to somebody who doesn't know the Lord, but He's there. It causes us to be more dependent upon Him, less of me and more of Him, right? What else does suffering do? Suffering can design divine appointments. Again, Paul, Philippians 1, toward the end of his life, remember, Paul is arrested, he's transported to Rome as a prisoner. He's under the constant watch of something called the Praetorian Guard. These were like the secret service of the Roman emperor. These are battle-hardened veterans. They were assigned to watch Paul 24-7. And yet God even used that in Paul's life to further the gospel. Listen to what he said in Philippians 1 verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now notice what Paul is saying here. You talk about a captive audience, right? Right? Paul saw his chains and his imprisonment as an opportunity to witness and to spread the gospel. Because these praetorian guard just happened to be fastened 24-7 to the most dynamic preacher of the first century, the the greatest apostle, the greatest church planner and missionary that God ever put on the earth. They happened to be chained to this man. And I can tell you, before they ended their shift, he preached to them the good gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Probably a three-point sermon, Brother Clifford, with some sub-points in there. And they got saved as they heard Paul preaching. And they went back to the the guardhouse and said, This guy is crazy, but let me tell you what he told me about. And one by one, they all got one to the Lord right under the nose of the Roman emperor. I'm telling you, only God can do such a thing. I think Paul laughed at the opportunity because... He realized that, no, I can't go out to the churches I planted, but you know what? God is sending a mission field to me every single four hours when I get a new guard strapped to me. I'm going to preach the gospel to them. Amen? So it was suffering, but it was a divine appointment that God used. A few winters ago, I had an early morning appointment out in town. And as I was driving to where I was going, I was going through West Asheville. There was like a freak snowstorm that morning. I don't even think the weather was forecasting it. I mean, it just came out of nowhere. And I'm going through West Asheville along my merry way, and I come around a turn, and my little blue car just starts to skid. And I end up running, boink smack dab into a high curb. Blow my tire. It's so slick, I can't get up the hill anyway. There are people who are slipping and sliding, coming down the hill. I watched a lady run into a telephone pole. I mean, the thing almost broke and fell on top of her car. It was like, I don't know, apocalyptic movie stuff. It was like a freak storm that came out of nowhere. So I had to call a wrecker to come and get me. So as this guy's putting my car on and we get in the cabin, he's driving me home. He asked me, Carmel. you know what he asked me? So what do you do for a living? Hey! You talk about an open door wide enough to drag a, a, a record truck through. In the cab of that truck, we were driving real slow on the way home, and I got to witness to this old boy, and boy, he was rough around the edges. And he asked me questions, and I answered him, and I got to plant some seeds in his heart along the way. And you know what? I wouldn't have picked that for myself, but God had a divine appointment for me, and if he had to run my car off the side of the road just so I could plant a seed in the heart of that old boy, then so be it. And you know what else? Suffering adds some credibility to the gospel message, doesn't it? When you suffer and people see the light of Christ shining in your life, they understand, hey, there's more to their faith than just Sunday morning soliloquies. There's more to their faith than just pie in the sky by and by. There's more to their faith than just a creed. You see, when you show Christ in suffering, it preaches loudly to a skeptical world that my God is real. And that Christianity addresses the deepest, darkest parts of life in a way that no other faith can. Why? Because we have a suffering Savior who sympathizes with us and took up a cross and understands our pain and our tears and our problems and wasn't scared of all that but came and took that upon Himself. Amen? Suffering can design divine appointments and then I'm finishing here. Suffering can create a desire for heaven. Lastly, suffering can create a desire for heaven. One thing that suffering does, friend, listen, it reminds us that this world is not our home. When our bodies get sick and they break down and we go through hard times, you know what it does? It makes the pull of heaven a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger. I have been by the bedside Of many an aged saint whose body has failed them. But their faith hadn't. Their memory may have been wiped clean by dementia or something else. But they still remembered the name of Jesus. They still knew the songs of the faith. And yet everything had been taken from them. Their bodies, their health had been racked with pain. And yet God was still there by the bedside to lead them over Jordan. To give them grace. For the moment, and friend, oh, it creates a desire for heaven like none other. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've buried a loved one. You've been by the bedside. You've had to say goodbye. And you understand heaven is a little bit sweeter now. And I'm ready to go, Lord Jesus, whether by cloud or whether by clod, You just come and get me and take me when it's my time. You see, the human tendency, the natural man wants to hang on to every little bit of life, every little scrap, every little dollar. We want to hang on to it to the very end. But the child of God who has the peace of God is able to open up their hand and open up their spirit and say, Lord, into Thy hands I commit my spirit. I'm ready for heaven. I'm ready for glory. I'm ready to lay down this old tent and take up a body not made with hands that's going to last throughout eternity. Somebody help me in the house of God today. Oh, there's joy in the Lord. And when there's the hope of heaven, You see, the the problems that we face along the way enable us to appreciate the inheritance that's to come. Peter says it's reserved in the heavens. It's undefiled. The moth and the rust can't get to it. The world can't touch it. It's waiting on you and me. You see, we got it backwards. This is the land of the dying. Across the way is the land of the living. And suffering reminds us that God is going to turn our groans into glory. He'll turn our hurts into hallelujahs. He'll turn our trials into triumphs. And somebody said it like this. I don't know who it was, but I love it. They said the difference between the Christian and the unsaved is that when it comes to suffering, a Christian has temporary sorrow and eternal hope While the lost have temporary hope and eternal sorrow. You see, suffering is like a bucket of icy cold water that gets splashed on you. And it's there to remind us hey, don't get too comfortable down here. This is not your home, this is not the best that it gets. There's more beyond. Hold on a little bit longer keep persevering, keep going through it, keep believing God, keep reading your Bible, keep praying, keep worshiping. There's more on the other side. All the tears, that's for the night. But the joy that comes in the morning. And friend, the depth of earthly suffering is only going to raise the heights for eternal glory. Let me ask you a question. Who are the people who are going to praise the loudest in heaven? Who are the people who are going to do backflips and cartwheels down the streets of gold? Who are the people who are going to have more to sing about, more to praise about in glory? I'll tell you who it would be. The people who were blind. The people who were lame. The people who had cancer. The people who had multiple sclerosis and couldn't get out of a wheelchair or couldn't get out of bed. You see, the depth of their suffering here on earth is setting them up for a greater inheritance on the other side because they understand what God has saved them from, and the depths of that redemption is setting them up for greater joy, greater praise, greater fulfillment and glory. And so, friends, sometimes we look at it backwards. We look at them and we feel sorry, and rightfully there should be some compassion. But really, what if it's a gift? A gift that in the span of eternity is going to set them up for something that we cannot even imagine. At age 17, Johnny Erickson Tata was paralyzed in a diving accident. She has spent the last 50 years of her life as a quadriplegic. But over the years, God has allowed her to see suffering as a gift. Here's what she wrote. She said, when God sent a broken neck my way, He blew out the lamps in my life and lit up the here and now and made it so captivating. The dark despair of total and permanent paralysis that followed wasn't much fun. But it sure made heaven come alive. And one day when our bridegroom comes back, God, she said, is going to throw open the heaven's shutters and you'll find the once paralyzed girl running and skipping and cartwheeling on the streets of gold in a perfect body, She said, there's not a doubt in my mind that suffering made me fantastically more excited and ready for heaven than if I were on my feet. Oh, friend, can you just imagine it? Five minutes in heaven. Oh, those first five minutes when you're there and you see the lame walk and you hug your loved ones and you fall at the feet of Jesus. Oh, five minutes in heaven, you'll be at His feet and you'll say, it was worth it all, Lord. All the heartache, all the pain, all the graveside, all the tears. Oh, it was all worth it, Lord, just to be with you here and to see your glorious face that's the hope of the gospel there's nothing else that brings hope and meaning to the suffering in our lives like that right there you see God not only uses it in the present to make our lives better but He's going to restore and redeem everything all the pain all the loss all the heartache He says in Revelation I'm wiping away every tear I'm making all Things new. Give Him glory today. Remember our friend Tamara? Here's what happened to her. She was so overwhelmed by life, she tried to kill herself. She felt her life ebbing away as she described an out-of-body experience in which her soul descended into a dark place of torment. She said this, I ended up in a place that was complete darkness. My body was burning. I became depression. I became loneliness. I became fear. The mutual thing that everyone shared there was their desire to scream out to everybody on earth, don't come here. Acknowledge Jesus Christ. Then Tamara said, I saw the hand of God coming down. I was cupped in the palm of his hand and I felt unbelievable love and peace. That hand, she said, brought me back into my bedroom and put my soul back in my body. And she said, I opened my eyes and there were the paramedics working over top of me. Her life was spared. She writes about it in this book, Second Chance in Heaven. She said the bullet had missed her heart by less than a quarter of an inch. And even the doctors are baffled that only she suffered a few broken ribs. Later in her recovery, she did turn to Jesus. She came to Him as Lord and Savior. She repented of her sin. She said, Jesus saved me and forgave me and healed me emotionally and spiritually. Now I am full of joy and peace. And then she said, I am who God says I am. Redeemed, blood-bought, predestined. A Recipient of the grace of God. Through suffering. Let's have an invitation, Elise. I know we've gone over about five minutes, but y'all will be okay for just a few more. Carmela's going to play for us. Let's have an invitation, brother. Pressing as he comes. Maybe you're facing something today that's well beyond you. You can't handle it, and you need God. Our altar is open if you just need prayer. Our altar is open if you need to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Our altar is open if you're discouraged today and you need help. Our altar is open if you want to start 2023 on your knees. It's a good place to start. Start fresh. Start new. Let go of those things of the past. Leave it behind and start a new year with the Lord. He'll meet you right down here if you're willing to come. Let's sing just as I am.